Welcome to Kings River Life's Mystery Rats Maze podcast, where we share with you mystery short stories and first chapters of mystery novels read by local actors. This episode features an excerpt from Lost and Found in Harlem by Delia Pitts. It's read by local actor Theodore Fox. Lost and Found in Harlem by Delia Pitts was published in October of 2017 and is available for purchase. If you'd like to help support this podcast, listen for details in the closing of this episode on how to become a patron and get some fun perks. When an African-American Army vet, S.J. Rook, lands in a sketchy flophouse in Harlem, he figures he's fallen as low into the gutter as he can go. He's disabled, unemployed, and headed towards a stiff case of alcoholism. But when a fire destroys the brothel, Rook finds a new mission. Uncover who set the blaze and caused the death of an innocent woman. Seeking answers to the mystery, Rook joins a neighborhood security agency as a fledgling private investigator. He has plenty to learn about the detective business, and the Ross Agency is the perfect school for PIs. Normit Ross and his daughter Sabrina provide fixed services to people in their hard scrabble Harlem neighborhood. They look into puzzles and tensions that fall below the radar of the police. As detectives without portfolio, the three Ross Agency operatives deliver security, confidence, and protection to clients whose lives often lack those basic comforts. As Rook investigates the deadly flophouse fire, the detective builds new relationships and finds a home. Lost and Found in Harlem is the first in a series of six contemporary noir novels featuring Private Eye, S.J. Rook. Chapter 1. The Rouge the fire at the Oberge Rouge gutted me. I didn't have much before the fire. The barber's kit, an acquaintance or two. Dignity measured by the eyedropper. The Rouge disaster took everything I had, but it gave me a chance. The Oberge Rouge was a decrepit flop house occupying four stories in a narrow red brick building a block from Morningside Park. The glamorous name suggested the builder had delusions of grander boulevards than the one the Rouge actually squandered on. Maybe he had even been to Paris once. This inn was a relic of more interesting times, when World War I doughboys, card shops, panhandlers, rural refugees, Overage urchins, pimps, and clueless travelers had gathered in Harlem, lucky to be one step removed from the gutter. This once elegant street recalled a genteel era where hopeful young girls fleeing the countryside could find safe harbor in these gracious buildings. Now the block was quiet, but the girls and the men here were on the prowl scuttling any hopes they might have once had in favor of hard transactions and easy hookups. Broken bottles and dented cans bloomed between the cracks in the sidewalk, glinting in the moonlight from a blanket of last fall's dingy leaves. The wrought iron fence flanking the stair leading to the inn's red door was missing many of its pickets, their delicate scrollwork mocked by the haunted neglect of the place. The Rouge had managed to evade the attention of 21st century building inspectors through a lively application of bribes and other inducements. 
Some of the most effective offers were in kind. Personal services arranged by Larry Sherman, the night manager. The worm earned his nickname, bartering the bodies of the tired women who were the primary occupants of the inn. I rented a room by the month, but Patty, Colleen, and the rest of the third floor crew rented by night at $9.50 a pop. I craved privacy more than decency, so I paid Larry the Worm twice the going rate for a double-wide cubicle with a sink hanging precariously off one wall. A six-foot-long rope stretched over the window from which I hung my white shirts and black trousers. The suspended clothing worked as a curtain of sorts since the original drapery had been lost years before. Swayed back and groaning piteously, the bed sagged in the middle when I laid down, and the grimy red carpet was worn through when my feet touched each morning when I got up. As an itinerant barber newly arrived in Harlem, with a stint in the army and a busted marriage behind me, I didn't have much money to spare. The Obers Rouge fit my budget and my mood. If the fire hadn't booted me from the Rouge, I might still be there. At least my shoes were on when I jerked up right in bed that dawn. Being too soused to take your pants off before falling asleep has its advantages, as it turned out, especially if a shrieking siren is going to play wake-up serenades at 4.30 in the morning. I grabbed my shirt from the ladder back chair near the window and leaned my bare chest against the sill. Glancing west through the opening, I saw a fire engine careen around the corner and slammed to a halt in front of my building. Five people of intermediate shape shouted at me from the street, pointing with frantic gestures toward the sky. I thought they wanted me to look up, so I did. Over my head, orange flames waved like angry banners from the windows, two stories above mine. Against the dark sky, the frantic display looked like flapping Halloween advertisement billowing out of season. I couldn't feel the fire's heat yet. Perhaps because in August, Harlem's night air is no cooler than an oven anyway. Or maybe my luck was holding out one more time. I knew there were people on the third floor, maybe the fourth floor too. The old hotel was mostly empty, a, a, a hospitality center in name only. But... I knew there were a handful of regulars I was sure was still inside. Girls I'd spoken to only a few hours ago. Even drunk, I remembered seeing them, trudging up the stairs from the inn's matchbook vestibule. Cotty, Colleen, Patty, and the goofy one who called herself Popsicle. And that other one with a cute pixie wig of cornflower blue nylon. And I was pretty sure I'd stumble past two, maybe three, men in the stairwell. The dark glances burning like skewed nightlights guided me to my room. If any of those people were still up there, they were quiet now. Dead or dope or drunk. Or perhaps they were silenced by the awesome power of the marauding fire. I could hear lots of shouting below me now, but nothing from above. So I ran down rather than up, cowardly maybe, but my gut spurred me rather than my shattered courage. I could live to be brave for another day. I limped out the smoke of the old bird's ruse with my wallet, my pants, my shoes, and the shirt on my back. My belt, the most valuable thing I owned, and a gift from my mother, was somewhere under the bed. I'd 
hoped the firefighters would soak my room with enough water so I could return in a few hours to claim it. The shadowy gang that had signaled me from the curb had been joined by dozens of gawkers by the time I reached the street. I tried to slip into the crowd, but my exit from the rouge drew the attention of a patrolman who called me over for an interview. This cop was slight but sinewy. His shoulders didn't quite fill out the stiff folds of his navy uniform. I couldn't make out the shape of his head or haircut with his cap pulled so low, but the face was rapidly and gaunt, distinguished by his deep color and huge eyes. He hunched over a notepad as he flung questions, causing me to crouch in imitation of his stance. I told him everything I remember, which wasn't much. During the conversation, I tried to keep my eyelids as still as possible and hoped the smell of bourbon on my breath had been overtaken by the scorched wool and the burning linoleum that blanketed us. The fire was confined to the upper two floors of the Rouge. My floor, the second, was intact though the hoses continued to drench it long after the flames receded. Watching the fire to contain the blaze provided the neighborhood with gaudy entertainment for more than two hours, the crowd growing even after the fire died. When the gaunt little cop finished with me, I retreated to the audience to await the third act of this drama, the one that revealed the body count. Gasping murmurs rose from the assembly as each stretcher was paraded from the brothel's blackened caucus. One, two, five bodies in all, just shrunken lumps under white sheets. I hated that these misshapen piles didn't dent the canvas stretches the way real bodies should have. No arms, no protruding legs. There was nothing to assert that these were human ones. Even the exhausted firemen seemed to bear these paws lightly as if ash were all that they could scrape up from the burned-out inn to account for each soul who had perished there. My bad foot was aching, and my back was sore from standing too long on the uneven cement. I wanted to get away from the fleshy stents and the flashing blue lights that bombarded the block at crazy angles from the sodden grime that dripped into the gutters on both sides of the street. As the sky brightened, Streaky white traces crept between the shrouded high-rise to herald another hot day, but the crowd in front of the ruse remained in night shadows. I was torn. I wanted to escape, but I wanted to get back inside and inspect my room, salvage anything I could from its wreckage. Indecision made me teeter on the curb, and that's when the new cop caught me. You look like you're in the rush. Got somewhere to be? I could look him in the eye, so he was six foot one like me. He had pasty skin, six straight black hair scraped from a harsh part, and round cheeks that pressed upward to encase the black eyes, even though he wasn't smiling. Chinese, probably. But other ethnicities were not ruled out. I could have fixed the haircut with a few quick scissor strokes, but the scowl seemed permanent. The suit was brown and well-tailored, with a teal windowpane plaid that hinted at dandyism. His waist surpassed his chest by at least four inches, and the jacket fit too tight under the arms, like he had bought it two years ago, and then got promoted to a secondary desk job. So, where's the fire, pal? I wanted to cut that smirk off his face with a straight razor. I've seen enough. No need to stick around. I suppressed a shrug, but I wasn't going to give him any more information than necessary. I understand you lived at the Oberge Rouge. He paused and then added, 
it's Rook. Shelby Rook, right? I wanted to correct him with the true spelling of my name, Shelba. Shelba Julio Rook. My mother, Alba Julieta, had linked her name with that of my wandering father, Sheldon, to give me a label that was both fanciful and feminine. Sheldon Rook was dark as an eclipse, smart, and muy peligroso, my mother told me, with a million dollar smile and a dancer's handsome grace. But it turned out, Sheldon plus Alba never added up to much besides my asphalt gray eyes. Over the years, I found out that my multiple ambiguities didn't sit well with lots of people. Name, color, race, language, everything straddled one border to another. So my given name Shelby had gotten me into plenty of fights since the first day of kindergarten. No need to strike up another battle now with this cop, Shelby would do. Yeah, right. So you know I already told everything to the other cop. Nothing to add. Well, I don't trust Nelson's note-taking abilities, so tell it to me again. When did you get home last night? More like around 1.30 or 2. Did you see anyone in the entrance or hallways? The night manager, Larry, was at his desk like always. And I passed two girls in the stairwell. And I passed two girls in the lobby. Which girls? I saw Patty and Colleen as I crossed the lobby. They rent rooms on the third floor. They were seated in the chairs and waved to me. When I got to the stairwell, I saw Popsicle too. She's from the fourth floor. I remember then the drawling conversations I'd had a few hours ago with the girls of the Rouge, but I didn't want to share my memories with this cop. They seemed at once too trivial and too intimate to reveal to a stranger, even if the girls were no longer around to demand privacy. I could be their protector, even if only in this small final matter. This reading of Lost and Found in Harlem was produced by Kings River Life and directed by Lori Lewis Ham. You can learn more about the author on her website, DeliaPitts.com. If you'd like to help us be able to continue to bring you more mystery fun, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash kingsriverlife. Even a dollar a month can make a difference, and we could really use your support. Watch for even more great perks coming soon for our patrons. We also have some cool merchandise available on Redbubble. Check the show notes for the link and for the links to our websites and social media. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter for bonus content. If you enjoy this episode, please rate or review it as this helps make us easier for others to find. And be sure to tell your friends. Until next time... This is your announcer wishing you a life full of mystery. <laughs>